This is from John chapter 8. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And at this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Last fall, as we began our ministry year, we looked at uh, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Christ, the characteristics, the things that the disciples did in the Bible so that we might emulate them. Last Sunday, the beginning of this year, we looked at the gospel, the essential truth that it's about a relationship with God and the things that people do to avoid that relationship. This morning we're going to start a new series as we be continue this new year. We're going to look at what Jesus actually said about himself. Who is he? What did he claim to be? What did he say about himself? If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that soon after Jesus' ministry begins, as Israel wakes up to his presence in their midst, as the religious leaders and the different peoples in Israel begin to respond to him, the first question they have is, who are you? What are you? They come to him, they question him, they challenge him, they listen to him. It's a question that haunted the early church. If you read the history of the Christian church, the early years of Christianity, in theology it's referred to as the Christological controversies. Who is, who was this man? Was he an ordinary man? Was he a god? Was he an apparition? Was he an angel? Was he an inspired prophet? People trying to make sense of who he could possibly be. And it's a question that faces each one of us this morning in this room. Who do you think that Jesus is? What is he? Your answer to that question is going to define your Christian life. It's going to define how you pray, how you worship, how you respond to the Bible. And so it's a key question for everyone that encounters Christ. Who could he possibly be? What did he claim to be? And in this series, what did he say about himself? So this passage, as you can see, is from John. John knew all about discipleship. He originally was one of uh, John the Baptist's disciples. And when John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, the Lamb of God, John the disciple left John the Baptist and began to follow Christ. 
and he witnessed all these controversies. And he shares with us here one of the key controversies where Jesus' claims about himself become so extreme that his life is threatened. I'm going to particularly focus on that last verse, uh, second to last verse, 58. Very, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, but before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Before Abraham was, I am. Why would that be such an outrageous statement? Why would they attempt to kill him? What was it that Jesus was claiming about himself? Well, if you are a student of the Bible, Old and New Testament, the phrase that leaps out is Jesus' claim that before, G before Abraham was, I am. That short, it's a, it's a verb, it's the verb to be. The statement that I am is what got under their skin. Because in that claim, Jesus is linking himself to the very essence of who God is. If you go into the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, the name of God is revealed intimately only once to Moses in the burning bush. And God reveals himself, I am. In Hebrew, it's four letters. He, written Hebrew has no consonant, has no vowels, so you get four consonants. Y-H-W-H is how it's translated. And in theology, that name, that revelation, is called, it sounds very ominous, the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, the name of God. When I was um, first a Christian, I was at college, and uh, a Jewish friend of mine there saw my Bible, and he saw that I had written in it, and he was outraged. Because in his mind, to the Jewish mind, writing in Holy Scripture is blasphemous. Because in Hebrew, God had revealed his personal name. And that made the Hebrew language sacred. And that meant that you should never write it. You should never underline it. You should never deface it. He was outraged at the cavalier way that I would go through my Bible. The Bible whose significance was this name. Why is that name so significant in the Jewish imagination? Why did it outrage the leaders of Israel? Why did Jesus claim it? We have, to understand it, you have to go back to the Old Testament and the story of where that name comes from. In the book of Exodus, the great hero is Moses. Moses begins his life raised as a child of Pharaoh. He kills uh, an Egyptian who is punishing and killing uh, Israeli slaves, Hebrew slaves, and is banished. And for 40 years, 
he spends his time wandering alone in the desert, tending sheep. Forty years that in his mind must have seemed like a complete waste of his life. And then this happens. Moses, this is Exodus. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames in the fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. The significance of this bush, by the way, is the bush is a symbol of the Jewish people. The branches and the roots, the continuity of the, of the um, Jewish people planted in the land. In fact, if you go to uh, the Upper West Side, where I used to live, the Jewish seminary there, on the uh, front of the seminary, right above the main door, there is a picture of the bush burning. Because Jewish identity, to a large extent, goes back to this incredible moment. Who is in the bush? God. And God greets Moses and says, you are standing on holy ground, and that he had to take off his sandals. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses gives, uh, God gives to Moses his call. He says he's going to send him to free the Israelites, free the Hebrew slaves, and create a holy nation. And Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you should call me from generation to generation. So in Hebrew, the word to be, in English, you know, is, or I am, or you are, or we are, the verb to be, to exist, is Yahweh. It is the name that God claims for himself. And you can translate it different ways. You can translate as I am who I am, or I will be who will I be, or I create what I create. The key point is that it is not a noun. It is a verb. It is the verb for doing, for existing, for creating, for being. And it is God's personal name. Notice how he links it. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the same one who appeared to Abraham and created the covenant with Abraham and all his descendants. The same one who showed up to his sons and renewed his covenant and created the lineage that would end up with David, that would end up with the Israelites in the promised land, that would end up with Jesus. That is the name. And that's, that's why the leaders of Israel are outraged at what Jesus is saying. But what does it mean when Jesus says, Before Abraham, I am. Well, you should know something about translation. When you read the Bible, there are different titles that are given to God. He's referred to as Lord, as Lord Almighty. There are a whole series of different names. But everywhere in the English Bible that you see Lord capitalized, L-O-R-D, that is the translation of this personal name, Yahweh. So when a person says Jesus is Lord, they're assenting to this description that Jesus makes of himself. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one who showed up in the burning bush. Jesus is the reason for everything. He is a verb. He is God's power in action. You can only know God by knowing what he has done. It's the reason, by the way, the Bible is not a textbook about God. Rather, it is a series of stories about what God has done and how he has interacted with people and what he has been up to in history. Think about that word, by the way. His story, that is what we are living in because he is a verb. And so Jesus is claiming that. He's not some smart prophet. He's not a teacher. He is not an example or an angel. He is the reason when God said, let that be light, there was light. He is the reason for everything that is. He is the power behind creation. He is beyond anything that we can easily imagine. It is an absolute and outrageous claim. It's a total claim. And it's the claim that we make every time we say Jesus is Lord. It is the claim that everything that is and everything that will be and everything that we are is present only because of him. There's a wonderful place in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul is trying to explain to uh, Grecians who Jesus is, what he is. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. God is not just what happens in Sunday on church. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't exist because we worship him. He does not need our worship. He is prior to everything we are and everything that we do. He doesn't need anything. God is completely self-sufficient. And in him we live and move and have our being. You know, there was a, a time in my life, I hadn't been a Christian for very long. It was right after my mother died, I began to have nightmares. Um, I've always been a great sleeper, never had a problem with sleeping. But there was this period of time, I had these terrible nightmares, and they seemed endless, like whole lifetimes in these terrible dreams. They seemed to just go on and on and on. And there was nothing so lonely and miserable and terrifying as being trapped in a nightmare that you can't escape. And I would wake up a gibbering mess. I mean, just completely undone. And alone in the dark, I got in the habit of, of praying because there was nothing else I could do. And I would say the Lord's Prayer, and I would uh, Psalm 23, the, um, the Good Shepherd. I would call out Jesus' name. Sometimes I would just repeat over and over again, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, just to calm myself down so I could become a human being again and think. It lasted for a period, I don't know, weeks, months. But I got so good at saying Jesus is Lord or beginning the Lord's Prayer that I would be barely awake and I would say it and I would go back to sleep. And then it seemed that I got to the place where I was self-aware enough that even in the middle of a nightmare, when I was still asleep, I was able to say, Jesus is Lord. And they gradually went away. They evaporated because he was right there. And I felt his presence and his comfort. And who knows, maybe I'm still having those nightmares. I just don't know anymore because I'm saying Jesus is Lord. Why do I say that? Because there is no place that you can be where Jesus is not. That's what this is claiming. Even in our dreams, in our nightmares, in our sleep. There is nowhere that you can go. In him, we live and move and have our being. We only live because of God. And it's not like he gives us a spark of life and then says, get on with it. Every breath, every moment, every move, every second, every heartbeat, every thought, every single part of our existence is sustained by the continuing presence of God. He is active in every life, in every person, in every moment and place in all of creation. There is nowhere that is not contested by God for God's glory. And there is nowhere that you and I can possibly be where he is not. And that's why he was right there for me. And that's why he's right there for every one of us. 
Because below the surface of our physical life, deep down in the very center of who we are, in our very being, God is present. Now, there's many things you could say about that, but I just want to draw out two implications. The first is prayer. One of the great influences on my prayer life was a, a Catholic theologian, Thomas Keating. He was a, a Trappist monk. He spent seven years in silence. And spent seven years not speaking to any human being, just praying. And he wrote a book about his experience. And I heard him being interviewed by Terry Gross on NPR. And he talked about what that time was like and what he had learned about prayer. And what he essentially said was, so many of our prayers are on the surface. We come to God as we would come to, to a person in our life. And maybe we chat or we come to him with our needs and we have our laundry list of things that we want him to do for us. We come with our ideas, with our life plans. We come to him with our hopes and our fears. And that is the limit of our prayer. But Keating pointed out, he didn't explicitly talk about this passage, but I think he's saying exactly the same thing. If this is true, if Jesus is Yahweh, if Jesus is the essential sustainer of our very being, if we live and breathe and have our being in him, then he's present to us in an extraordinarily intimate way. And in prayer, it takes a lot of practice, by the way, if you can remove distractions, if you can concentrate on your relationship with God, if you can say, and I, this is how I've been able to do it to a certain extent, if you can say, Jesus is my Lord, or just Jesus, or just Father, or just Holy Spirit, if you can focus and let go of all extraneous thoughts. Let go of your hopes and your fears and your problems and just be. Allow yourself just to be in God's presence. There is the possibility of an encounter there. All the theologians and mystics of Christian history talk about it. To being fully present and being met, I don't know a better word for it, an encounter where you are present to God and he is present to you. In an intimacy, it's hard to describe because he is the very core of who you are. Not just at the core. He is what sustains that core. The one who created that core. The very essence of who you are, your most private and intimate self. And he's right there. Right there to be encountered. Anytime, any place, anywhere. Something else to think about. You heard Katie talking about the memorial that we're going to have for Dave. One thing that I have encountered. Um, Thankfully, I have not had to deal with too many deaths in our church. We tend to have been a young church. Not too many of us have died so far in the last 10 years. 
But there have been some, and I have had occasion to go to people who are dying and to go to hospital to people who are very fragile and very sick. One thing that I have observed is that as people's lives diminish, as they get sicker, as things are stripped away, their ability to move, their ability to get up out of bed, their ability to control their life and the future, their ability to go to the bathroom with dignity, their ability to eat. Steve Brandt, uh, who some of you knew, when he was in hospital, he had tubes down his throat. He couldn't even speak to us. As the different physical and material elements of a person's life is stripped away, what remains is God. Because if this is true, if Jesus is the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being, if that is true, then as the physical elements of our life are stripped away, our ability to move, our ability to breathe, our ability to eat, our ability to have conversations with other people. As our physical abilities are stripped away, something remains. Our relationship with God through Christ. Because he is right there. Our life is, is revealed as fragile. But there is an essence, a soul, an inner being that lasts forever because Christ is present and sustains it forever. That is all we will ever really have because everything else in this life ultimately will be stripped away. And that is what you're claiming when you say Jesus is my Lord. That the very core of who I am has a relationship with somebody that transcends this material world, that does not depend on the health of my body, that will last when the last mountain is worn away and falls down, the last star burns out. Jesus is the essence of existence. And when we have a relationship with him, we are binding ourselves our being is held forever by him. People who are dying, people who are sick, ask for many passages in the Bible. But they always ask for two. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And Psalm 139. I'm going to read that to you now to end the sermon because I think it sums up everything I'm trying to say here. But as I read it, think, why would a dying person want this to be read? What is it in these words that is giving comfort? And apply it to yourself. What truths are in this psalm that you can hold on to? What promises are being made? What guarantees of your future are in these words? Think about that. Perhaps you might want to close your eyes as I read it. Apply it to your own heart, to your own hopes, to your own fears. Think about it, what it means for your future. I'm going to read it right now.
You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, we thank you for the promise of Scripture that it is in you alone that we live and move and have our being so that no power, no force, no person, nothing in all of creation can threaten us or take us away from your hand, can hide us from you, can bind us away from you, can prevent us coming to you and praying to you and calling out to you. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord, Lord of all, Lord of our life, Lord of all creation. And it's in Jesus' name that we thank you. Amen.